For many of us with an HBO subscription, Game of Thrones premieres tonight, Sunday, April 14th, and this episode of Double Bonus Podcast uh, could be considered a season finale of sorts because the basketball season ended last Monday, and you know it's a long summer of no basketball, so the season ends. We're still going to have shows after this, maybe every couple weeks throughout the offseason, but this is really the end of the 2018-29 basketball season. Now, I watch Game of Thrones. Brendan does not watch Game of Thrones and somehow is able to walk around New York and still keep his wits about him. But for our introduction tonight, or today, I thought maybe Brendan, I sent him a Wikipedia page of some Game of Thrones characters and just thought it would be funny if he could read off their names and see how well he does pronouncing them, having really never watched the show. So, Brendan, take it away. Well, I think it's ironic that uh, Tom, I... I seems like he's going to enjoy my mispronunciation of these characters, but he just said he sent me a list of names from Wikipedia. But, um, <laughs> specifically said Wikipedia. <laughs> we'll go back Wikipedia. to the Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. um, so originally my idea for the cold open was to like give Tom some names of characters and have him like who is the equivalent like college basketball person for these names, but once I uh, started pronouncing the names it became clear that the better cold open was me just pronouncing the names. So I'm going to I'm, I'm going to run through the names, and, uh, and then that'll be the cold open. Tyrion Lannister, Cersei Lannister, Daenerys Targaryen, Jon Snow. That was easy. Related to J.T. Snow and Jack Snow, I hope. Yeah. Um, Sansa Stark, A- Arya Stark, Jaime Lannister. I see, I've heard that one. I might have pronounced it Jaime, but I, I think I've heard the name Jaime Lannister before. Jorah Mormont. Theon Greyjoy, Samuel Tarly, Peter Littlefinger Baelish, Lord Varys, Bran Stark, Brienne of Tarth, Davos Seaworth, Bronn, Miss Sandy, Sandor the Hound Cligan, Grand Meister Pissell, Edison Tollett, Podrick Payne, Melisandre, Tormund, Giant Spain, Grey Worm, and Tywin Lannister. So the only college basketball comparison I'll make is whoever the best-looking person is, is Tony Bennett. (laughs) Double bonus the rest of the way. Double bonus as well. Two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 26 of the Double Bonus Podcast, a very special Double Bonus Podcast. Not just because it's the season finale, as Tom mentioned, but because we have our first interview. Um, our interview is with, well, we're going to introduce him in a bit, but he's a very big Virginia fan and a listener of the podcast, and he was there in Minneapolis for the historic uh, championship for the Virginia Cavaliers. Um, so that's coming up in a bit. Uh, but before we do that, we have a couple things to do. We're going to do some news and notes, and then after the interview, we're going to talk about the what we remember most about this season, the legacy of the season. Um, but first, we can't go any further until we beg you to please rate, review, five stars or more um, in the Apple iTunes Store. You can also Apple Podcasts, I believe they have the you know Google Play Music, Spotify, Podbean. Listen, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Uh, tell your family, tell people you don't like that much even, um, because, you know, it's really important to, uh, to our lives and our, um, our, uh, our id and our, and our, and various other parts of the brain that Freud described that we get more listeners. 
who can listen to this great content. Uh, how are you doing, Tom? I'm doing good, Brendan. Uh, how are you going? You any college basketball withdrawals so far? Um, fortunately, I've been so busy at work that it hasn't really hit me yet. Um, and there's there's so much there's kind of stuff going on. He's like these players are declaring, but then the declaring doesn't mean as much anymore because they can always come back and. Um, and this coaching changes. There's, there's enough drama going on in Jamaica Queens to kind of fill my college basketball brain for at least a week or so. Um, and the the Providence College had its award ceremony last night, where like basically everyone got an award, uh, including Malik White as Defensive Player of the Year, which I thought was uh, I don't know who voted on this award. I assume it was the coaches, but uh, and Malik White apparently. <laughs> Malik White's parents had several <laughs> votes, um, but yeah, you. Uh, I mean, what else is there going on? We have baseball season started. The Red Sox have been very poor. The NBA playoffs have just started. The Celtics are playing right now. I'm, I'm, I'm behind live uh, watching the game on, on Hulu, which has live sports, according to Joel Embiid. Um, and then you have the Masters. Uh, some stuff is happening in the Masters today. Uh, but other than that, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It's a lot of sports. What about the hockey playoffs? Your Bruins big win Oh, last yeah, the night. Bruins tied it up last night. I, uh, yeah. Uh, evened the series. I, I saw one of the worst goals I've ever seen that a team gave up when Toronto's, I get, was it Nylander? Nylander? Nylander, Just, yeah. like, basically he's all, put oh, the puck in his own net, practically. Also a character on Game of Thrones, by the way. William Nylander. Ooh, William Nylander. Yeah. So uh, that's what's going on with me. Um, did you have a good weekend? It's a, it was a nice weekend here in, here in New York City. Yeah, perfect day to be sitting inside at 3 o'clock Eastern and recording a podcast. So I hope you got outside today. It is a little cloudy now. Yes, a little overcast. Yeah, no, it's It's been a good weekend so far. So let's get into it. Um, Our news and notes segment. Um, There's a a lot happened actually in the last week. We had several uh, big coaching changes or coaching confirmations. We still have a couple big jobs out there. We've had some players who've um, either confirmed they're returning to school or or confirmed they're going to the draft. But, uh, But let's get into some of the big ones. We saw UCLA. Um, finally announced their hiring of Mick Cronin. Um, they obviously had a very a public and somewhat embarrassing process, Somewhere. but that cre- uh, yeah yeah very, quite embarrassing process. Uh, that creates an opening in Cincinnati where there where it hasn't been filled yet. At least uh, I don't think it's been filled yet. We also heard Mark Eric Musselman is now at Arkansas, and Steve Alford will replace him at Nevada with a ten-year contract. Uh, Buzz Williams officially at Texas A&M, um, and Mike Young who some uh, Ken Palmer picked as coach of the year at Wofford is the new coach of Virginia Tech, not, um, not Kevin Willard, which was rumored for a period of time. Uh, we had some smaller ones as well we'll get into, but those are really the, the biggest ones. Texas A&M and Virginia Tech have new coaches. Arkansas and Nevada have new coaches. UCLA is a new coach. Cincinnati does not have a new coach yet. What are your thoughts on these, these big moves? Uh, well, first of all, I feel for UCLA, just like it's such a tough job and you can just tell because the fans I think are so unreasonable and their reactions to the fans are so unreasonable that it really scares off a lot of these top names and now they have McCrone in there who obviously is not someone who over let's say say he does not overachieve in the NCAA tournament so is this really a recipe for success in UCLA to have this guy who who has a reputation fairly or unfairly as a perennial underachiever uh, at Cincinnati to go to UCLA and really just you know uh, wow people and then at um Nevada, the thing that struck me is Steve Alford, you know, he did okay at UCLA and probably actually probably better than people credit for, but why does Nevada, I guess it's only worth $11.6 million, but why does Nevada feel the need to give him a 10-year contract to to come there? That, that's something, I'm, I must be missing something there. So, 
that's that's another takeaway. And then Eric Musselman really fell flat this year in Nevada and just moves on and goes to Arkansas, which is probably a, you know it's a major conference job. Uh, obviously, that program's had some issues uh, recently and just you know really stumbled of late. But I don't know. It seems like he made out okay after you know one of the most disappointing seasons in college basketball this year, uh, given their preseason ranking and just all the players they brought in and just really did not gel and did not did not challenge themselves and then did not really succeed. Obviously, losing in the first rounds of Florida. Yeah, I definitely, I don't think I've ever been a big Eric Musselman guy, but I definitely am not anymore. Um, uh, that said, I, I guess I can understand, you know, why Arkansas would be interested in him. He wouldn't have been the top of my list uh, for sure. Uh, I don't I don't think that's a great hire. But uh, interestingly, uh, Ken Pomeroy put out an article this week where he basically ranks each job based on conference affiliation, how good they've been in the past, I guess, like 15 years or so. I think there are some – I mean, I think he would admit that there are some flaws uh, or some holes in his methodology just because of the data available um, and how much the data might be tied to specific coaches. Like how good – is Duke really a better job than Kentucky or um, or North Carolina? Uh, because Mike Krzyzewski has been there for so long. Like if every job opened up today, would Duke be the best – the most sought-after job? I don't think so. But regardless – um, there is some merit to his rankings, um, and he actually had UCLA as a worse job than Cincinnati. He had Cincinnati 20th and UCLA 29th. You know, there's a money factor, although LA is a much more expensive place to live than Cincinnati. To me, the reason why Mick Cronin would leave is one, money, but two, after a certain period of time, it, you might feel you're hitting your head against the wall um, at a place in Cincinnati, which is a good program, good, a great basketball history in a lesser conference, although a better conference frankly, than the Pac-12 was this year. Um, you could imagine him thinking, well, on the, there's two things. One, professionally, uh, ambitiously, I want to make the Final Four, and I haven't done it in Cincinnati, and I have a better chance to do it at UCLA, he probably thinks, which he's probably right, I guess. Um, and two, how many more years of losing in the first weekend with a good team is my fan base, are my fan base going to put up with? Um, and I think the combination of those things, thinking, well, next year maybe my team won't be as good as they are this year, and I still didn't make it to the Sweet 16 <laughs> the last couple of years with like, very good teams, so unless I can get deeper with a worse squad at some point, um, I'm probably at some point going to test the patience of, um, of the fan base, and maybe they'll actually want me out like a Jamie Dixon at Pittsburgh eventually kind of ran out of the good graces of, uh, of the Pittsburgh fans. So like, I, I, it's a strange move in some senses, but for those last two senses, it, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, get out when the getting's good. Sometimes it's better to be too early than too late when you get out of a job. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, some of, these, some of these jobs, you know, like um, at Virginia Tech, Buzz Williams obviously a very good coach and really elevated that program uh, to new heights. We'll see how uh, well that lasts under the new regime and then – uh, some just it's it's tricky because some you, you you don't know with these jobs you know which is um which is the coach and which is the program itself like how many programs are you confident that the next coach will be great like everyone th- the program will still be great everyone but UConn is a good example several years ago Calhoun left and obviously they won a title with Ali but it's really fallen apart and it's not that great a job and it doesn't seem like it's going to be like that easy to burn it to build it back up to a national power or even anything close. Now, obviously, they have the conference issue and a lot of other things, but there are a lot of wild cards that go into these programs, and nothing's the same. Uh, nothing's for sure. Nothing's certain, 
And some of these coaches really are the program. And Duke is an excellent example. Like it's going to be such a shock when Coach K retires and how that program goes. Um, so we and a lot of it's based on just you know though this team really did well. They had a couple good runs in the NCAA tournament. You're basing it off those small samples and those kind of you know could be fluke wins or whatever. But it's just a very hard uh, it's a very hard thing to evaluate. You know what's a better job? Who's a better coach? Etc. And the carousel is fascinating every year because of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of the Virginia Tech job, um, uh, we got a, after I tweeted about how it would not be a good look for the Big East for um, Kevin Willard to leave Seton Hall for Virginia Tech. Um, a user of Twitter who was at the time called Ryan three three four six five nine two one, but is now called um, Farm 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 with farm spelled like pharmacy or pharmaceuticals. Um, clearly, Virginia Tech fan. His his image on his uh, on his Twitter, not his icon, but his background image, is a photo of Virginia players who are very sad in the NCAA tournament, presumably because of losing to UMBC, and his. His name, you know, you can have a different name than your actual yeah. Twitter handle, is UMBC74UVA54. Apparently huh. he didn't watch the, uh, the tournament and realized Or any of the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, after I said that it would – basically, I said that uh, Virginia Tech was not a top ten job in the ACC. And he said, not a top ten job in the ACC? What are you, high? So um, <laughs> Virginia Tech fans clearly think that they have it's a good, attractive job. Ultimately, they got a coach who had been at Wofford for 20 years. So I don't, maybe that – Tells you I need to know about the job. Not that Mike Young's not a good coach, but it's not that they got like the hot, the, the hot up and coming guy, or even like a good coach from another major conference team. Um, you know what jobs are, are worse? What jobs are worse than Vatech in the ACC? Pretty clearly, Boston College probably is, Georgia Tech probably is, Clemson, and then maybe Wake Forest because of how bad they've been of late and the academic standards there, and it's being a small school. So even if they're, it's better than all the jobs, that puts them at 11th. Like, the only other jobs I think that are in consideration for being worse jobs in Virginia Tech and they see are Pitt and Miami. And I, I guess you could put Florida State and Notre Dame somewhere around there, but I would definitely take those jobs over Virginia Tech. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's no shame in saying it's – I mean, I don't think there's any shame. The ACC is the most famous basketball conference in the country probably right now. So there's really no shame in saying it's a top – it's not a top 10 job. It's just something – you know, like, yeah, it's just not. Like, I'm sorry, Virginia Tech is not a good program, but it's a credit to what Buzz Williams was able to do there. It's a credit to Buzz Williams that he took this team that was, like, a shot away from saying Duke to overtime in the regional semifinals. Um, yeah, so it's just not. It's not a great job, and there's a lot more history among these schools and other programs with a lot more resources and a lot more um, chances to do well, even if you do score 24 points in a basketball game since he stayed this year. So. Um... Other jobs that closed this week, Casey Alexander, who's, on, who's alma mater, is Belmont, returned to Belmont from Lipscomb. Lipscomb, of course, had a terrific year this season, reached the uh, semifinals of the NIT. Uh, Mark Pope, um, the former BYU assistant, a uh, current, well, at the time, was the, was the Utah Valley head coach, is now the head coach at BYU. Um, he played on the national championship game at, um, at Kentucky. And apparently Mark Madsen, who uh, you may remember Mark Madsen from Stanford, Mark Madsen played at Stanford in 1998, two years a- after Mark Pope left Kentucky, but played Kentucky in the Final Four for Stanford, right. replaces Mark Pope in Utah Valley. Like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Like, the, what are the odds? Um, no, Mark Madsen, very known for his fiery demeanor on the sidelines as a player. I think his nickname was Mad Dog at Stanford. Um, so we'll see how well. I'm sure he'll be nice, calm. Calm as Tony Bennett on the sidelines, you know. More Tony Bennett than Tom Izzo. He coaches at Utah Valley. 
Uh, but hey, good for him. Good start for if you want to be a coach. He's got to be what, like 45 years old now, 44. He was a senior in 98. So uh, yeah, good, uh, good stuff for him. Yeah, uh, a couple other notes. Doc Sadler, who was the head coach at Nebraska and uh, was replaced, I believe, by Tim Miles and then became the head coach of South, Southern Miss. Southern Miss had its best season in a while this year, but he stepped down to become an assistant coach under Fred Hoiberg at Nebraska. He's putting together quite a staff. And part of that staff is part of the reason why it looks like um, St. John's will be – well, that's what it doesn't look like. St. John's will have a new coach. Fred Hoiberg um, – basically hired one of St. John's assistants um, to become his assistant. Uh, he's putting together quite a staff. Matt Abdel-Massey, which is who is like one of the great recruiters in the country. Uh, Bobby Lutz, who used to be the head coach at UNC Charlotte and took them to multiple NCAA tournaments. And uh, Doc Sadler is uh, obviously has been a head coach for many, many years in Nebraska and Southern Miss. Uh, quite a staff for Fred Hoiberg, but... Ab, um, Abdel Massey leaving uh, St. John's put um, Chris Mullen in a tough spot. Uh, he ended up stepping down mutually, I guess, kind of. And um, now St. John's is looking for a head coach. I didn't hear anything in the last day, but it looked like Tim Cluis, the head coach at um, Iona, was the likely replacement. Um, they flirted, so, so to speak, with... Um, with Bobby Hurley at Arizona State, that led to him getting like a massive extension. Um, and then there was rumors of, uh, probably unsubstantiated, but, well, I mean, it was substantiated. Rick Pitino said he wanted the job, but uh, he did not get it. it looks he's like he's busy be. in Greece. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it was a very strange situation where, so uh, not so much Rick Pitino's situation. Louisville has, has been given a notice of allegations or some kind of like, Kind of, kind of thing like that this week, but um, it looked like it was almost a done deal between um, St. John's and Tim Cluis, who had been at Iona for a very long time, up tempo coach. It would be a fun style at least to have in the Big East. But then on I think it was Thursday, um, Iona released a statement saying that they're excited about Tim Cluis being their coach, and they have not heard from St. John's, um, which I think was their way of saying that the buyout is not going to be reduced. And it's about a two million dollar buyout, two point two to two or two point five million dollar buyout. Um, and now it seems like maybe St. John's doesn't want to pay that buyout. So uh, th- this would be a really bad look for a, a major conference team in St. John's to basically kind of half fire, half big, you know I don't know how you want to describe it with their legendary player Chris Mullen, strike out on their first choice to replace him, and then on their second choice not get him maybe because they were not willing to pay the buyout so and that and then also um basically that whole program is go- mustafa heron is the only player that i've seen that it, that played meaningful minutes for st john's next year who has not already announced he's not going to be back either joining entering the transfer portal or declaring for the nba draft st john's will be terrible next year really really bad it's a multi-year rebuilding project um brian trimble announced he was transferring justin simon put his name in the draft Shamari Pons had already put his name in the draft, and I think I saw someone else was entering the transfer portal. Um, oh, and they also had, I think, two different recruits coming in this year who uh, have opened up, reopened their uh, recruitment. So LJ Figueroa also put his name in the transfer portal. So the only guys they have coming back for sure that played meaningful minutes are Brian Trimble, who is bad, and Sadeh Kida, who was bad, maybe better next year. Um, really bad situation at St. John's. Yeah, I'm looking at the New York Post article about it. The buyout is, in fact, apparently 2 to $2.5 million, which is a lot. Clue signed a contract extension through 2025, 
recently, so I can see why um, that would be that number at Iona. Uh, I also see a related headline, Meta World Peace, aka I run our tests, says to St. John's, I'll hire me, I'll coach the team, that would be a very interesting uh, rebuilding project. And yeah, I know. And the thing with Mullen that's weird is he announces it's a personal loss. His brother died, so he maybe that was saving face. Maybe that was a bigger factor than we thought. But oh, I didn't see that. Uh, didn't see yeah, that. so I think it was his brother. Um, but you, yeah, if you're St. John's, though, you really got to you know think two or three moves ahead and so whiffing on Bobby Hurley and then not knowing the buyout for Lewis and now really being left with a not that appealing job, given the rebuilding thing that you talked about, Brendan. Uh, it puts you in a bad situation. So, and of course, the Chris Mullen hire wasn't necessarily the best one to begin with. So, St. John's has not had the best uh, few seasons as far as matchment goes, and it's been a revolving door of players and now coaches. It's it's a tough spot. And the Big East, you know, came the top came back to earth a little bit this week. So you think that you know if St. John's had made better decisions a couple years ago, they might have been really on the ascendant here. Now they're back to square one, which really stinks for. Uh, their fans and fans of like a New York team having a good presence in the Big East and in the national picture for basketball. Yeah, at the end of December, there were people thinking that St. John's could win the Big East because because of how Villanova had been playing. Uh, it does look like the Big East is in a position to bounce back next season. Um, Villanova, Marquette, and Seton Hall are pretty much in everyone's top 25, um, way too early top 25s as, as they're normally termed. And Marquette's been as high as two in some of them. Uh, Creighton and Xavier are also get and Georgetown are getting votes in some of these, and I, I biasly, but I think Providence will be an uh, NCAA tournament competitive team next year. Uh, we'll see who comes back at DePaul, um, and and Butler had a Joey Brunk announced he's going to transfer, which is a big loss for them. So I, I don't know where Butler is going to fit in next year, but uh, but I do think the Big East could be looking at six or seven really competitive teams, but one of them will not be St. John's. Um, Three players I wanted to note who are definitely coming back to school. Um, various levels of surprise, but uh, all point guards. Um, Ashton Hagens at Kentucky, Trey Jones at Duke, and Marcus Howard at Marquette announced that they are returning to school. Hagens and Jones for their sophomore season. Marcus Howard, who, is, who was one of the youngest freshmen in America when he was a freshman, would be returning for his senior season. Yeah. Um, Trey Jones, I think, I guess surprised me. Maybe he got scared off by having um, three other top-flight Duke players in the draft that are going to go ahead of him. I don't know. Uh, would you say he was better or worse than his brother in college? Because Tyus Jones only played one year before being drafted. Um, I would have said that Tyus Jones was a little bit better um, as an offensive player, but uh, you know, Trey Jones was known as being one of the best defensive players. Uh, Tyus Jones... Shot 38% on 124 attempts on three. Um, also had a very good assist turnover ratio. Um, and got to the line a lot and shot 89% when there. Just maybe a more polished offensive player. But Trey Jones uh, was a really good defender. Um, yeah, 26% from three, 76% from the line. Didn't get to the line very much. I, yeah, I, looking at the stats, that kind of confirms. I, I would say Tyus Jones was a better player in uh, in his first year at Duke. And he was uh, drafted 24th overall, um, and this was the uh, last year he played a full 82 games for the Wolves. This year he played 68 games, I think, because of injuries. Um, but it took him a while to break in. He did spend some time in the D-League. Um, so, yeah, maybe he talked to his brother, maybe he got some info and thought one more year. And when he's going to be a much, obviously, well, depending on who Duke brings in, a much, uh, much higher profile name just for the fact that he's going to be one of the few returnees left on the team. Uh, yeah, so that was interesting. And... 
Yeah, um, Hagen's obviously had a very poor finish to his season with that game against Auburn, so he should be happy to go back and get it in. And I think that one thing about Kentucky, people rip Calipari a lot just for kind of being having the appearance of being a slime ball, but um, he works with his players well to maximize uh, their NBA career. I don't think you're ever going to see a Kentucky player like come back to Kentucky at Calipari's behest because he's taking a selfish angle on how it affects him versus their livelihood. So. Um, I don't think that that's anything to worry about as far as Kentucky goes. So those are my two takeaways from uh, those players. And Kentucky, Duke, and Marquette, the, th- the three players that, uh, that I mentioned, the, th- the teams for the three players that I mentioned are all picked to be very high in some of these early top 25s. We'll talk about this probably in a future um, podcast, but if you look at, I've aggregated about six of them so far, six like kind of public top 25s um, for next season, and Kentucky's second uh, Duke is fifth and Marquette is seventh. Um, and I, you know, some of these, depending on when they're published, might assume some players stay or assume others leave. And obviously, those need to be tweaked based on who actually stays and who actually leaves. Um, yeah. Yeah. Michigan State, the consensus, way too early, number one. Yeah, that of course assumes that Cash Winston would stay, which I think makes sense for him to stay. And that Aaron Henry, I guess, would be the only other player that would think about leaving maybe Xavier Tillman those guys are all kind of borderline guys now so it's a good chance that really everyone comes back uh, all the key players come back from Michigan State um, and then we don't know we don't see a super team coming from Kentucky or Duke next year UVA a bit higher than I thought I guess it assumes Ty Jerome's coming back they have them third uh, Michigan fourth Iggy Brazdakis has announced he's going pro and is not like considering coming back Whereas um, Charles Matthews and um, Swaggy Pool, Jordan Pool, he uh, he, may, he they've always announced, but also announced they could come back. Um, that's your those are your four. Duke's five, and then Oregon is six, even with Bowl Bowl and probably Lewis King going pro. Um, we can get into that a little bit in a couple weeks when we podcast again. Let's move on to our first ever interview. So this is our first guest on the Bowl Bonus Podcast. Uh, first guest ever in episode 26, we finally got there, and it's a special guest. You've heard his uh, his writing voice throughout the year as the would-be assassin. We're now going to reveal uh, for the first time in public his real name, which is Todd Hinckley. He is uh, an old co-worker of Tom and mine. Um, he's not old, but a long time ago is what I'm trying to say. Um, and he's a, a UVA alum. And uh, also, like UVA MBA, right? You did double it up in UVA, Todd. Yeah, what we call double who. Yeah, double who. Double alum. Yeah. And so he was out at the Final Four. He's been a longtime fan. He's a really good college basketball fan. So we figured bring him on to just get an understanding of what it was like. What's it like to root for a team that wins national title and to be there when it happens? So I guess the first question I have for you, Todd, is this was a particularly remarkable run to a championship just because of how close Virginia was to losing, especially in the last three games, not to mention being down 14 against Gardner-Webb in the first round. Um, What was it like as a fan when you're down by three in the final seconds against Purdue, when you're you're up by 10, but then down by um, a four in the final seconds against Auburn, and then when you're up by 10 twice, but then down by three in the final seconds against Texas Tech? What what was it like to be in the situations and then also then to actually be able to see and experience the comeback? Oh, man. Um, it's pretty fun to relive, what I can say. It's good, to, it's good to talk to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Very honored to be the first guest. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the tournament, I think it goes all the way back to the Gardner-Webb game because that was, like, brutal um, deja vu, like Groundhog Day. And all of the all of the negative feelings, thoughts, possibilities were just flooding, flooding back. Um, and uh, to be able to come out of that one sort of as a one seed should was, was sort of a nice pat on the back, you know, get over the first hurdle. Um, but for those last three games, um, you know, Brennan, you talked about it in some of the past episodes, dealing with your emotions during games. Um, as I've been uh, married for a few years now, my wife has gotten used to my behavior and has tried to uh, improve my, my reactions um, and help me manage expectations. So I would say for the first one, for the Purdue game, I was I was at a wedding. Um, I think you said you were traveling that weekend too, Brendan. Brendan. So I, I was I was not as as invested in the whole game because I had to be kind of muted anyway because of the environment that I was in. Um, so I think I basically kind of chalked it up and, and you know was was trying to embrace the loss. And then we got to the Elite Eight. It was a big step up. It was a big improvement. You know, Tony hasn't gotten the full monkey off his back by getting to the Final Four, but um, you know. So trying to trying to deal with with the, the likely outcome at that point, and then uh, and then when when everything played out, the, the missed free throw um, from Purdue's side, then they do the, 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 the foul of three, makes the first, misses the second, the whole tip, you know, it just was unbelievable. That one was was either the the hardest and easiest to take in because of the set of, of the environment, but I couldn't be as happy and like jumping up and down and as loud as to give you how I want it to be. Um, and because of that, I think I tried to prepare for the loss, you know, when they were already, you know, when they went down three. And I, that one I pretty much had thought the loss, the game was over when they didn't get the, the rebound on Carson Edwards' shot and they went to the free throw line up two. So expecting them to hit both, the game would have been over, yeah. essentially. Um, and then they come out of that one. And, and I, that was just sort of crazy. And I was immediately talking to all my friends and figuring out if getting to the Final Four was going to be possible, um, working out some details and just trying to go and experience it because it's really, really hard to get there. Um, and so the two Final Four games was a little bit different because you're there, you're in the building, you're on your feet most of the whole time, you're jumping up and down with every play. I was able to be a little bit more of, you know, my, my old self in reacting to that one for those two games. Um, but at the same time, you know, processing everything in my head and, and realizing how, how little chance we had to win those games once we got to the to those last few seconds, um, it just made it that much sweeter to come out with, with the W. I mean, I don't know, you guys are both have been sports fans for a, for a long time. And you get, you know, the losses are harder, and there's just so many more of them that you kind of prepare yourself for the bad outcome. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that they, that they you know, got the foul call, um, they made all three, uh, free throws at the end of the semifinal game, the shot in the corner that Hunter made, they were all right in front of where we were sitting. It was just all so, so cool. You know, I, I said, there's no really other way to describe it. It was like, um, you know, I really had, you know, had, had gotten a little bit down. It was really just that preparing for the loss, dealing with the expectations, trying to process and losing the league, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then uh, and then they reversed it and got the W. And it really just was it was so cool. That's awesome. Now you mentioned last year. So before we go back to the final four, there, Tony Bennett has no, had no shortage of doubters and maybe even haters or just outright critics. Where would you have put yourself? Obviously, probably as Tony Bennett defender. But how strengthened defender, strengthened defender were you, Tony Bennett, after last year and throughout this year? As you know, the whispers 
Loud or maybe into the Garden and Web game. Uh, give us, before he won the title, before he was vindicated and validated, uh, where would you put yourself on the 20 back scale? Oh, wholeheartedly a defender. Um, and I would say most of my friends are, were in that camp. Um, there was definitely some chatter amongst my group of friends, um, both both in college and, and business school, guys that were like, this isn't going to work, you know, sell now. This is just a, you know, an arbiter of more of these same kind of things that are going to need to come. And the rest of us were like, you know, no. Like, this guy has had an unbelievable track record of, of winning through the regular season. It can't just be that the, the crucible that is the NCAA tournament is that much of a, you know, a different arena to win basketball games. The guy has an unbelievable track record of figuring out ways to win basketball games. Um, with teams that have been less talented than the one this year. So I, I was always pretty confident that, you know, that, that he, is, he is the best path we have towards being a relevant basketball program. Um, and uh, despite the loss last year, it just was, um, you know, un- unfair added ammunition for people that already doubted the program and criticized the style of play. Um, but, uh, you know, talk about sort of, um, trying to evaluate things with full perspective. It's like a small sample size. So people would, would ask me, like, what, what happened in that UMBC game? How is that possible? You guys were the, the, not only the number one seed, they're number one overall seed in the tournament. I mean, right there with Villanova, I think, most of the year last year, the best team in the country. You guys can maybe argue otherwise, but mm. they're right up there. And uh, and it just, as you said, it wasn't just a loss. It wasn't a last second loss. It was a blowout. Everything possible went right for UMBC. Everything possible went wrong. Uh, for UVA, um, so that it wasn't even close. It was like, you know, however many years you go back to there have been one versus 16 seed matchups where things could have possibly broken from the 16 seed and just didn't quite get there, and they just all broke right. Um, maybe that was my biased perspective of what was going on. Um, but it, it was like, it, because of that, it almost made looking back on it almost easier to handle because it wasn't like one little play. It was just such a barrage of, like, you can't be serious that it made it like, I think it's, that's the outlier. You know, you don't go 17-1 and one in ACC play one year, 16-2 another year. You, don't, you just keep beating, you know, beating the UNCs of the world and, and, you know, not beating Duke as much, but, you know, <laughs> winning, winning a lot of ACC games and then all of a sudden it's just a completely different animal. you got to get rid of the guy because he, he's lost some bad games in the NCAA tournament. So I would say most of my friends felt like, look, the breakthrough is going to come. Um, at some point, we'll be the team that's hot, you know, um, in the uh, in the NCAA tournament, or the breaks are going to go our way. Because I, I would say in this tournament, it wasn't necessarily that we were the hot team. It was just obviously a lot of breaks went our way. Um, but uh, I, I would say I was definitely in the camp of defender. Um, it was really unfortunate that, that uh, we had to take that, that loss last year. It's going to, you know, even with this win this year, it's still going to be something that the, the program has to carry with us for forever. But, uh, yeah, I would say I was very much in the, the defender camp. If there was a time when I maybe questioned Tony Bennett, and I've always been a big supporter of his, I mean, starting with what he did at Washington State, which was ridiculous, um, at a program that had very little success over the years. But um, it, it's not so much after, regard, after the UMBC game, which was just like, oh, man, how could this happen? I just couldn't, couldn't really believe that it happened. The the one time where I was like, what is going on? Maybe this is not going to work out. Was after the 2016-2017 season, they were, I believe, a number two seed in the NCAA tournament. Um, let me let me just double check that. Um, the, the year after they lost 
no, they're number five seed. They were five seed in the NCAA tournament. They won the first round game and they got blown up against Florida by 26 in the second round. And then Mario Shayok and Darius Thompson and Jared Reuter all transferred. This is uh, the, the freshman year of Ty Jerome and Kyle Guy. And the next year, they weren't even ranking the top 25. Of course, the next year was actually last year when they were the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. But entering that season, it felt like, what is our thing going awry for Virginia? What, what do you know about that or why that happened, both that big blowout plus the transfers? When Were you at all concerned at that point? two blowout losses that we've had to Florida under Bennett, and one of them was more like seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, and it had part of it had to do with if we were hurt going into that game, so we were very much undermanned. But the game that you're talking about, I don't think we had any significant injuries that I can remember, and I, I, I mean, I may be wrong, because that one, that one just flat out, we had no, we had no chance. But as the mojo had kind of fell off a little bit, so that was the first year post-Brockton. London Parentes was our star player, mm-hmm. our, our best player, and then we had Guy and Jerome, uh, a true freshman. And, uh, it, it, yeah, I don't know. That, that game was a bad game. They, they looked terrible. The offense had nothing going on. I think they did one of the games we scored in the 30s. Um, yeah, 65-39 in that game. No one scored double figures. And uh, Virginia scored .65 points per possession in that game. So, like, I think my going into the following year, I didn't, I, I didn't have, a, you know, the expectations had been, had been tempered for sure. It, at that point, it did feel a little bit like I, I didn't know much about DeAndre Hunter going into that next year, and it felt like our biggest opportunity was the year before with Brogdon on the team. That was a loaded team, uh, one that had – that was the year that Villanova beat Carolina in the final, and I think we've beaten both of those teams in the regular season. Mm-hmm. Beating Villanova in a close game, I think at home. I remember that Carolina game, late. yeah. Carolina late um, in the season as well. Um, so it was like we get to the Final Four, and those other teams are the two other favorites. I, I felt pretty good about playing both of those teams. And they had the 15-point lead, so like that was the high point was the Brogdon team. Because Brogdon was clearly a better player than they'd ever had before, mm-hmm. um, and was a, a true difference maker for for the program. And he's like Hunter, but I think he was more of the star, like the one star in that team. He was a little more prominent than Hunter has been. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have to share the load with two other you know, star guards. Um, so then that the, the season you're talking about was was clearly a bit of a down period. And then going into the next year, yeah, it was weird. I don't know at the time. I think to your question about the transfers and where things were going, um, one of the friends who who um, kind of set me up at the Final Four last weekend was much more clued in to recruiting and some of the things that were going on. And he was not surprised when, when Shayok left. I think Shayok was never super – happy in the system, um, never super happy with his role because, again, at that point he played kind of second fiddle or third fiddle or fourth to Brogdon and Parentes and never, you know, I think been able to, to shine as much as he felt he could. And mm-hmm. it's kind of proven that he could be a, you know, a lead guy with his, with his year this year at Iowa State. Um, so the, the, the transfers were weird. It kind of it, it was, it was a chance to reset the program a little bit and figure out where um, – where things were going to go, and it was really a chance to put, you know, this is this is now for Guy and Jerome to uh, to be difference makers and, and see what they can do. And what made the difference that that uh, last year, and then, you know, I wasn't sure if it could happen again going into this year. Those two guys, took, there was such uh, I think distinct improvement from those two guys, but also the seniors last year who hadn't been as as much of the star players um, in the past. There, there was such a 
significant differences year to year that you don't always see, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like you're projecting out, like, oh, well, this guy should be this, and you hope that that's going to happen, but it, you know, it doesn't, ha- doesn't happen. I didn't know how good these guys could be, and I think for most people after that, the Florida loss you're talking about, there was a lot of skepticism of the you know, guards, two are lying on shooting, they're not quite big enough, I don't know, is the defensive system going to hold? And that, yeah, I, th- I think there was a uh, there was a thought that it might be in kind of the downturn. We'll see how Tony can can uh, steer the ship. And he did an unbelievable job last year, um, up until the UMBC game. And then um, you know things things carried forward uh, this year. And I think that was one of our my first uh, notes to you guys early on in the season in the podcast was there was such distinct like significant improvement from those guys from, from Guy and Jerome from to freshmen to sophomores, I wasn't sure they could make another leap like that this year, and we've lost a couple um, key contributors from last year's team that had also made significant improvements, but I wasn't sure we could get the, the talent, um, the depth, the, the backfill some of those losses, and it turns out that I was uh, fortunately you know, wrong. It's pessimistic early in the year that we had plenty of uh, plenty of depth and room for the guys as well. So one of the things you always hear from the media is how good a city or how bad a city is. Final Four and Final fans really care about that. They're getting paid to be there, but you paid to be in Final Four as a fan. Uh, what was your opinion? It was your first Final Four, but how was it for you as a fan? What was the balance of the fans like among the four schools? What was the energy like in the building, especially during those uh, up-and-down moments at the end of the two games? So how was your overall experience there? Obviously, it was sweetened by the fact that they won. Yeah. Just overall, it's just the uh, four or five days spent there. Yeah, trying to be objective. Um, I'll get to the I'll get to the building. I'll uh, sort of answer that last. I've never been to Minneapolis before. We uh, we stayed out by the airport, so the only unfortunate thing is we had to take like a 20 or 30 minute uh, taxi into downtown uh, each day. Um, but that was fine, and it was it was a small enough city that you could kind of walk around. You didn't need to take a bunch of Ubers to get from from one venue to the next if you were doing some sort of tailgate or hospitality thing beforehand to go to the stadium. Um, so I thought Minneapolis was fine. We also lucked out that it was like 65 degrees there, which is definitely not always the case in late March, early April in Minneapolis. I think it snowed a foot like the day after I left. <laughs> so very pleased that that didn't happen while we were there. Um, I think that for a Final Four city, I think what people always like is you know, it needs to be big enough, but you don't want it to be too big. And that's what I've heard from yeah, a lot of the, the media. But like the perfect place that people always think it's a random place for a Final Four is Indianapolis because it's so small and compact that the stadium is right next to every place that you'd probably be hanging out. Um, I think Minneapolis is probably a little bit bigger, um, but still walking from where all of my sort of friends were hanging out, some of the uh, people that I, I know through work, some of the, the hospitality events that were, that were nearby was all easily walkable. Um, and kind of had a had a general sort of you know um, feeder system into the stadium going in before the games. It was a really cool environment. Um, so that was all was all good. You know, as a, I've never I've never been to anything like this before. Right, so the first Final Four, like getting into the airport, seeing all the signage. You know, just walking by anyone, any, any person you see that has a Virginia hat on or sweatshirt on or something like that. You know, yelling go who's The vibe was just so cool. Everyone's just so so excited for it and. Uh, I think I didn't realize what the balance among fans was going to be until we got into the building, and it was shocking how uh, how much Texas Tech had shown up. So we get in there on Saturday for the first game. Uh, Texas Tech Michigan State is obviously the second game, and the UVA and Auburn fans are obviously decked out in the same colors because basically navy and orange were on catty corners uh, parts of the, of the stadium, um, and. I feel like the, the UVA 
was had pretty good numbers, but um, we're kind of were both games had a similar flow to it. We went up fairly, you know, we had an early lead, um, and there was, you know, I think there was a, a more of a nervousness from our side with expectations that you didn't get too high, too consistently loud when they had the lead, and then when things started, the tide started to turn. It was chance for the opposing teams to get that much louder. You know, if you're down six, you hit a three, you go down three, you can be a lot louder than when you're up three and make a, you know, make a, you know, make a bucket to go up five. Like there was always just not quite far enough ahead for us to just go static at every play. It's always just sort of nervous energy, and the team that was coming from behind got to be a little bit louder. So Auburn was probably not not any bigger in size than we were, but they definitely made some noise. But it was we stayed to um, after sort of you know decompressing a little bit after the end of the Virginia Auburn game, watching the next game, seeing how big uh, and how loud the Texas crowd was um, was surprising. And then going to the final, you knew that they were going to be the, the the bigger crowd, the louder crowd, um, and they certainly were. And it was kind of frustrating. I, like you kind of feel like you know you're in there, you're in the moment, you feel like you have some. Uh, impact that you can make on on the players and you know making them feel that they have support and I felt bad for our guys that there you know at certain times it's like I need to remind them hey you're you're still up six like don't worry about that last shot just because it just got loud realize that you're still up six try to still be loud and support the support the team because you're definitely we were, were even on a neutral court um, fighting a little bit of the crowd battle so I was surprised by that I figured that the DBA crowd you know finally getting over this hump was was going to travel. Um, I think it's CVA's alumni base is kind of spread out across the Eastern Seaboard a little bit, coming from big cities. I figured there would be people there, and there were. Um, but, it, yeah, I was never very surprised how many Texas Tech people were there. So hats off to them for, for showing up for a school that has, you know, even even less history than, than we do, taking uh, capitalizing on the opportunity to, to do something like this. But so objectively, the city was good. Uh, the stadium I thought was actually phenomenal, and I, I'm, I'm that one I have can be less objective about. We had um, sort of the school section seat, so we were in the lower area that's close enough to the court that it felt like you were in any any kind of basketball arena, just bigger because you look up and it's, it's a massive stadium. The acoustics are pretty good, and I can still see the action. I'm not you know in some corner far away with binoculars. So I thought the, the arena was cool. The the vibe, the noise, the energy inside, everyone was super. Super excited, and uh, and yeah, the crowd split was was uh, I would say the only one that really stood out was Texas Tech. Um, since you were there, I wanted to kind of get a sense on three plays that happened, three calls really. Uh, yeah. One is the foul on, uh, on, that was called um, on Samir Dowdy when he fouled Kyle Guy at the end, which I think was 100% the right call. But it seemed like some people, like we were in a bar, and uh, Tom and I both watching in a bar, and um, and at first it wasn't clear that a foul was called. I saw like a player from Auburn holding his head and thought maybe he was just like in such shock that they came back and won. But then, and apparently Bruce Pearl was going to shake hands. And like, so I think that that's one play. I wanted to get a sense of what it was like in the stadium. What did you hear? What did you see? Did you know it was a call right away? And the other two were right before that, the non-double dribble call, which no one, I think Twitter basically realized it was a double dribble before anyone else. So I like on Ty Jerome as he's trying to dribble behind his back to get past, uh, I think it was Jerry Harper on the final seconds. And then the third call was in overtime of the championship game when DeAndre hunted out the ball out of um, David Moretti's hands. And it looked like, I guess, by the letter of the law, technically it was off of Moretti. I know there was a similar call on uh, Odeasi that was not overturned earlier. But just as fans, like, what was your experience of each of those 
Um, they all ended up, I think, at some point going to re- replay review. Well, I guess the first one, the Jerome one didn't, but just what was it like being in the building when those controversial calls happened? Um, you so close to you. Yeah, so where our section was, we were right along the baseline where in the semifinal game, Guy hits the three when they're down four, and it was right where Guy, you know, the opposite corner, but still on our same baseline where Guy took the three when he got fouled. What was really interesting, I think, from from in the building perspective, there was no reaction. I would say that amongst the 72,000 people that were there, no one saw the double dribble. There was no who's, no grunt, no, you know, at least when I was in the, the Virginia section, so I think no one was, was, like, holding their breath or anything. But it, it happened so fluidly, um, and, like, just no hesitation. He picks it up, just keeps dribbling, and then they foul him again. That they're, like, they're, I, I, and I, I, probably, I probably am a little bit biased in my perspective, but there really didn't seem like there was any, oh, my God, that was such a missed, missed call. How could they all, how could that not have been, um, been whistled? Um so there was like there was really you know no second glance at that when that one happened. Um, it, it, so then that comes to the next play, they inbound it uh, after Auburn had, had given their last foul to give a shot in the corner. Um, what's weird, to, I guess, to your question about it being was it a was it a late call? How, what did everyone react to it? I thought the game was over when it when it didn't go in. I thought the game was over. Um, the whistle did seem to come a little bit late. Uh, and that was the only time I saw Bruce Pearl get really, really upset. So, um, I, you know, I, 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 it seemed like it was a questionable call. Um, and the whistle did come a little bit late. I think it was the guy that was sitting behind me was like, oh, wait, they did, they did whistle it. You know, there's the, the basically for the vertical thing. It seemed like it was more that, that they didn't, the guy got too close to him and didn't let him land. So he got in his, his cylinder or whatever you want to put it, whatever the terminology is for that, that call. Um, and uh, there, there was a little bit of like a, did we just, did we just get away with one here? Or like, I, you know, I think there was a little bit of, of uh, reaction on Virginia's side, like, whoa, this is this just saved us. We actually have a chance now. But I, I don't know. I didn't think that that was – there was a little bit of a delay, it seemed like, from the, the in-stadium perspective. When you watch the replay, it looks like he has his hand up and is, and is calling it as soon as it happens. I don't know if he just like if if there was for the referee who they were the that official called had some you know, J- James Breeding, Big East yeah. ref. Yeah, I should be I, I should be writing that name down, sending him a Christmas card. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe there was some delay. Yeah, maybe there was some delay in his in, you know just his actions of like oh I called it but maybe I, you know, I forgot the whistle or something like that. But in the stadium, it definitely felt like it was a delay. So that's why I think it, you know. Um, if Bruce Pearl's not looking at, at his body reaction, it seemed like there was a little bit of a delay. Where I think most of the players didn't notice that it had been called until after the shot hadn't gone in. Um, and that was when I compared to uh, reactions. I feel like even Bruce Pearl didn't, like, pitch a fit or anything like that when the double-triple happened. So, you know, things transpire at the end of that game. That goes to the free-throw line. Makes you know the calmest shots that you've ever you've ever seen. Um, game ends, and I'm texting people because I, I, you know, the Purdue game was was incredible, but it wasn't really. It didn't seem like there was anything questionable about it. It's fluky and unbelievable how it happened one over time. There's nothing to feel as bad about um, unless you're standing next to a Purdue fan because um, you've all been through those losses. For this one, I wasn't quite sure. It took me a little while to be like, I feel good about this one. Was this fair? Was this like we get away with one, and I was texting with people, and I was asking, was that a real foul? And 
most people have responded back right away with all of the TV commentating is saying that there's no question of foul, but there was a double dribble stick in. And I was like, what double dribble? What do you mean? Oh, and it's like it deflected off of his knee. So in the stadium, there was there was very little reaction at all to the double dribble. The, the foul call was much more like, uh, you know, it was not as obvious to the naked eye how much he bumped him. And it wasn't even, I think, Tom, you may have said this in, the, in your guys' recap earlier this week, it wasn't even that he bumped him after the shot was out. He bumped him, and he hadn't even gotten rid of the ball. There was a body check before he releases the ball. So that one um, we're able to feel much better about once I saw the replays, but it was a little bit awkward uh, when it was first whistled. Well, I think you should feel no guilt about the <laughs> Definitely the correct call. Um, yeah. My, yeah. my last question for you is just, you know, you were in the arena, and then, so sometimes it may be hard to, because you're used to so, you're watching so many games on television, and I think you said you rewatched at least some of the finals, not all of the finals, but is there anything you felt like you missed that you saw when you rewatched the final? Because to me, the main takeaway from that game was just how good Hunter was playing defense on Cole for the whole game and still scoring 27 points. But what were, what be your takeaways from the game that maybe you didn't see from the championship game when you're in the building caught up at the moment that you might have seen on, uh, upon further review, so to speak? Well, there's a couple things, and one of them I can I can go back to part of Brennan's question was the the replay and the championship game as well, because that was another one that I I wanted to rewatch the end of regulation and the end of overtime because of the, both of those review calls. That was one of the only frustrating things about being in the stadium at those events is they never show you the replay, and if they do show a replay on the screen, it's quickly it's one. So actually, for both of those plays, they quickly flashed a replay. And both times, you know, being in the moment, I thought the ball that it should have, it actually did look like it was off a Texas Tech player. Um, I was surprised when the Odiaki one happened at the end of regulation. I was really pretty confident that they were going to flip that and give the ball back to UVA. It didn't, and it was sort of like, how is that even possible? It looked clear from the, you know, the one, you know, almost real-time angle that, uh, that we saw. The one at the end of overtime, when it was when they tracked down Moretti. And uh, uh, Hunter flicks the, flicks the ball out of bounds. I, I, I get the point that, that you guys have, um, and a couple other things you want to talk to. It's really like if, if you, if the right call seemed to have been made from the angles that they had on replay, and the ball did actually touch Moretti's hand. It's kind of like if, you, if you're angry with that being flipped, then you're angry with the premise of replay, which I think is one of your points, Tom. Um, but it was. It, I did like going back and seeing the replay and seeing what. You know what the broadcast talked about it. What the perspective was of, of uh, the official official analyst Gene Gene Sparator. Yeah. Um, so Friend of the podcast, Gene Sparator. Yeah. <laughs> those those moments were were hard to take in in the stadium because you had you had no commentary, very little context, um, and barely any replays. Um, and it felt like um, it felt like the flip to UVA's ball from what we saw it, it, it kind of was right. Um, by the letter of the law, um, and the other one was a bit of a surprise. So um, those are both worth going back and looking at because um, you're a bit in the dark um, and you know waiting on the replay, waiting for the officials to make a decision um, when you're when you're in the building. Um, as far as like the flow of the game and things, Hunter being awesome in the second half was pretty evident. Um, <laughs> but going back and going back and watching watching the game again, or, you know, being able to pick it apart a little bit more. Um, I think uh, I think uh, Jerome's playmaking was kind of cool to see. Um, just kind of thinking about the sequence again, you know, what the kind of plays that some of these guys made coming down the stretch was really really cool. Um, yeah, some of the defense that, that Hunter and the team because they kind of switched off a little bit. He was the dominant defender on um, 
on Culver, but other guys played made some really big plays. I mean, the key block with a second to go was phenomenal. I think the other, like, in the moment, trying to think of the – prepare yourself for the worst when, when they didn't um, manage to secure the rebound and call the timeout and the ball goes back to Texas Tech. After everything that happened, it was like, uh, you know, our luck has run out. This is the way it's going to end. They're going to hit a jumper here to win the game. And, and Key gets up there and makes a, makes a great, great play. So I, I think what was impressive in watching it back was that both of these teams, known for such great defense, for the last, you know, 35 minutes, 40 minutes of the game, to exclude the first five or so minutes where the offenses were struggling. But the defense wasn't bad, but the offense was hitting shots. Yeah. Um, and that was and that was kind of impressive to watch. Um, but yeah, Hunter in the moment, like, I think one of the big talking points for a lot of Virginia fans coming down the stretch was there were some games where Hunter was really invisible. Um, and you kind of got on him a little bit of, like, what do we need to do to actually get over the hump? Yeah, he got um, benched at the end of the Purdue game. You know, exactly. And I was looking at, I was looking through the, some of his numbers. Um, I mean, he was he was a very he's not as as much of a volume shooter as guy, but he was our best three point shooter percentage wise all year. And when he was knocking down those shots, then all of a sudden you have to get in space on the three on the three point line, and he's he's so quick and long that he can he can drive by a lot of folks. But he, you know, he became a little too reliant on you know step back or or you know dribble one two dribble trying to take these you know long two jumpers. So it was like this guy just needs to he needs to you know man up a little bit and get inside and use his strength. And I think he did that a little bit in the Auburn game, got some confidence going, and and then was knocking down shots. I think he was four for five from the three point range, including the tying one in regulation and the really big one that put them in the lead for good in overtime. But it was like it, it was like finally you know deep breath. This is what we've been waiting for this guy to really show up because when he's this good. It, it really takes us to to obviously another level. So um, it, it was it was cool to rewatch and be like, oh man. But like I think some people noted who were watching it in um, in real time, you know, his three to tie was created by you know maybe the not not the smartest defensive play from Texas Tech part, Texas Texas Tech part, but the drive by Jerome. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of cool in that sequence that they're down they're down one and Jerome basically does the same drive and does his little pull-up shot that he makes a lot, makes all the time, doesn't go in, Texas Tech gets the board, they go down and, and make two free throws. And it was one of the first times that UVA, like, didn't, you know, dribble out to 30 seconds. Obviously, they, you know, they realized the moment in the game and it was okay to take a quick, take a quicker two if the shot's there. He comes back down, down three, does basically the same drive, feels all the help coming towards him, sees the play. It was that assist. He had a similar play where he found Guy in the uh, kind of the opposite corner uh, about five minutes ago in the game. It may have been the play that put actually UVA up by 10. Seeing a couple of Jerome's playmaking, because he didn't score as much, he didn't shoot as well. Um, seeing some of Jerome's playmaking was like, oh, man, that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, last question. Um, is it going to be a, about legacy? So uh, Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy, DeAndre Hunter. These are like the three big stars of – the finals, uh, the, the championship game for Virginia, and uh, for the season in general. Uh, two of them may be back, it's possible. Um, but assuming, let's, let's say they none of them play. I mean, I know Kyle Guy, I think it's almost certainly back, and we'll see about Ty Jerome. But let's say that no one, none of them plays any more minutes for Virginia. Rank those three players in terms of their legacy in Virginia basketball history, and uh, do any of them get to, up to Ralph Sampson territory? If none of them play another game? Yeah. Uh, I think it's no on the Ralph Sampson territory, but they're, they're 
Okay. Because there's no other national titles. I mean, I, I, uh, Ralph Stanton is like the main guy that gets talked about, obviously. There were some other good players that PBA had in the 90s. John Crotty. Crotty. Uh, Brian Stiff. Uh, Brian Stiff. Um, Curtis Staples is one oh, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember watching. Majestic Map. Um, Majestic Map, yeah. And, um, Travis Watson, guys like that from the early 2000s around the time I was in college. Sean Singletary. Um, but, the Pete uh, Gillen era. That was that was quite an era. Hey, yeah, that's, and that's my prime time. That's when I really first got into it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think it's after Ralph Sampson, you know, the next best era of UBA basketball is the Tony Bennett era. And I think it's it's like Joe Harris was the first guy that really, you know, where it wasn't just, oh, this is a quirky offense that can win some games. You know, that was the, he was the leader of the team that was the first one seed back in the, the 2014 year. Um, and then Brogdon, um, and I, I think going into this year, I would put Harris and Brogdon well ahead of, of this trio. Um, and and now I think you know they're they're stacked. I think Harris is still going to be um, Harris and Brogdon will still have kind of a greater catalog, uh, you know, a longer tenure. Um, but they didn't win the national title, so I think these guys would would uh, would be up there. And I think each in their own way. I think like hunters, you know, hunters of three talent. Guy is the is the purest shooter, uh, and Jerome is a you know a kind of playmaker like they've never had before. So easily not in Ralph Sampson's territory. None of them were three-time national players of the year. Um, none of them are like will be the the number one icon or you know um, personification of UVA basketball. But I would say Tony Bennett is probably the number two person in the, in like you know uh, person of UVA basketball. And these guys are in that that tier now, and I think they probably etched themselves ahead of Brogdon and Joe Harris. Well, my um, personal personal opinion, but they could get more. You know, guy comes guy comes back and and uh, and like you know sets some some more records of you know the most three point shots in in school history or something like that. Um, Maybe they uh, maybe he gets maybe further ahead, but that's that's my two cents. Well, let's wrap it there. This has been a UVA-friendly podcast all year. Now that they're champions, I don't know how uh, how much we're going to want them champions again. But at least for this year, I think we're all on the on the same team um, and rooting for UVA to get really, really far at the very least. And once once we saw the the 14th at the end, I think we were all hoping that uh, Virginia could get it done. And improbably, even though Virginia is, was the best team, clearly, uh, it was improbable how they did it and uh, makes it more memorable. And, and as we said before, the the DVD or whatever people, Blu-ray or digital version of that that talks about this season is going to be uh, one of the great uh, documentaries, hopefully, if it's done well in uh, college basketball history. I'll, uh, I'll watch it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Todd. Um, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Uh, you know, and Feel free to tell your Virginia friends that there's a, a lengthy Virginia segment on, uh, on this week's episode. I, I certainly will. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks. Okay. Well, that that was the first uh, interview that we ever had, and it was uh, very detailed. If you are into Virginia basketball, then uh, you learned a lot, and you appreciated that. Found the right podcast, yeah. Yeah. Found this was the right episode of the right podcast. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about the legacy of the season. Um, the, kind of the, the form, forming question, we're going to do a draft is kind of what we do here. But the, the forming question is like, what will you remember about this season in 10 years? And so before we actually do that draft, I wanted to think about what I remember about the season that was 10 years ago. That's a 2008-09 season. 
Um, and not a memorable season, really, for uh, either of our main teams. It was the year after Kansas National Title. It was the first year of the Keno Davis era for Providence College. Um, and we were still in the midst of um, Bill Carmody's time at Northwestern. So it, it wasn't really like a banner year for the teams that we follow. And it wasn't, looking back at the NCAA tournament that year, it wasn't all that exciting either. But without looking, I guess, what sticks out from the 2008-2009 season for you, Tom? I just remember it as, you know, I was a Kansas fan. They won the year before, and I knew they lost a lot of players, um, and they lost in the Sweet 16 to Michigan State. And I just remember, like, they beat a really good North Carolina team, and that North Carolina team came back and really did not have much trouble in the NCAA tournament. And that was a bad Final Four. Uh, none of the games was close, really. And North Carolina blew out. I guess the Michigan State-Connecticut game was really close. The signature play for that game was Darrell Summers just slamming it in Stanley Robinson's face, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, <laughs> uh, but that was just like Carolina's, like, you know what? We lost last year in the, sem- in the semifinals to Kansas, and we have everyone back. Tyler Hansbrough was his year for real. Like, it was, he was great the year before. It was just their year to shine. They just, like, throttled Michigan State in the championship game. And um, it was really their year to shine. There's some other moments, too, um, I know we'll talk about. I remember watching that UConn... Um, Syracuse six overtime game, living with a UConn fan and a Pitt fan, and I remember, of course, really the most, um, the most dumb, the most probably the most memorable play of the season was Scotty Reynolds taking Villanova over to the Final Four in that uh, in that regional final in Boston. Um, yeah, that was that was a good year to be a Big East fan until the Final Four. Yeah, um, Vill- the Big East really was that was like the peak of the kind of super bloated, super top heavy. Actually, very much similar to what the ACC is right now, uh, Big East. Um, and the Big East got three number one seeds, Louisville, uh, Pittsburgh, and Connecticut, I believe, are the three. Um, and they got two Final Four teams in UConn and Villanova. Um, Louisville ended up losing, in, as you mentioned, well, yeah, you didn't mention, but Michigan State made the Final Four, and they beat Louisville. Uh, Louisville, I think, was the number one overall seed entering the tournament and not North Carolina. Um, I, that year I covered the Big East tournament, uh, for SNY, a sports net New York here in New York, um, the Mets, uh, station and was there for the six overtime game between Syracuse and UConn. We, we, there was a cold open earlier that we had because it was, uh, this was the season of course of the 10 year, 10th, the 10th anniversary, which is why we're talking about this season, uh, which was an incredible game. Um, some memorable characters, you know, Eric Devendorf, Andy Routens, Johnny Flynn, Jeff Adrian, Hashim Thabit, Kemba Walker, like these are some memorable names um, in basketball history, uh, college basketball recent history. Uh, as you mentioned, the pit. So the first day of the Elite Eight, there were two games involving three Big East teams. It was Missouri, Connecticut. Missouri had um, Damari Carroll was on that team. Uh, I think Kim English was on that team too. Um, they played in the West, and then it was in Boston, Pitt Villanova, and I was. Uh, with a friend of mine who went to, who was a big UConn fan, he's from Connecticut, didn't go to UConn, um, and we were at a bar in Murray Hill. First mistake. Yeah. Um, but we got second, there. Well, first at, was hanging out with UConn fan. Second was going to Murray Hill. Ouch. 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 Um, so the, we f- I figured, hey, we'd meet, we'd hang out there. It was very empty at the beginning of the game, the first game, which I think started at like two or. Th- Three, maybe like it feels like it was like two or two. It was it was not what now they have those elite eight games on Saturday. They started basically at five or six, I think six p.m. But then they were earlier. 
Um, and so I was there in the bar. I had gotten at the Big East tournament when I was covering. I, I quote unquote stole some Big East tournament Big East uh, towels. They were basically like a little white towel with a Big East logo on it. So I brought some to the bar, and I was just like waving this Big East towel in this like half empty bar in Murray Hill. Um, and UConn won, and then the Pitt Villanova game was very exciting and close. Uh, Pitt still hasn't gone to a, the Final Four. Um, Scotty Reynolds had that great shot at the end. It was, I think, Bill Raftery and Vern Lundquist did that game. Yep, sounds right. Um, and by the end of the game, the place was packed, and I had these, like, really, really loud Villanova fans, like, screeching, women, screeching in my ear when they scored. It was, like, a little bit uh, uh, obnoxious. But, um, but, yeah, it's interesting because the season was defined by the Big East uh, throughout the year, but... The team that defined the season was North Carolina with Tyler Hansbrough winning the national title. Um, all in all, I'd say, and this is also the last year of the Billy Gillespie era, the year before uh, John Calipari took over at, at Kentucky. It, it's not actually that memorable. Maybe I don't remember it that well just because it, I, it's a long time ago. Um, James Harden, I was a big James Harden fan. That was his last year in college. Um, but it doesn't seem that memorable of a season. Maybe. No. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say, like, which is going to be a more memorable season, this one we just finished, or 2009 season, obviously this one. And uh, just looking through, like, because North Carolina, I think it came up last year when Villanova was going to the national championship. Like, what was the last team to have a similarly easy path to the championship game and, like, and winning the title? And I looked, last year's Villanova team did not win by fewer than double figures in the tournament. Their closest win, I believe, was by 12 twice, once to Texas Tech. Texas Tech in West Virginia. West Virginia. And then North Carolina in 2009, I think, they did not come. They, no one held them within single digits. So, um, uh, including Villanova, of course. Uh, they, let's see here, they played, yeah, they played, beat LSU by 14 and uh, Blake Griffin's Oklahoma team by 12 in the regional final. That was the closest that anyone came. So those are two dominant teams. And, yeah, it was not that memorable season, but good for it. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty good Carolina team. A lot of NBA players, a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of um, you know people are still. Ed Davis had a big game yesterday in the NBA. He was a bench player, a role player on that Carolina team. Danny Green's obviously uh, had his moments in the NBA, and then Lawson and Ellington, and of course Tyler Hansbrough, who you know, one of the great college players of all time, probably. Yeah, Ty Lawson has has had a mixed NBA career with a lot of weird things that have happened, but yes. he was so good in this season. He had the highest offensive rating of any player in college basketball, um, and Tyler Hansbrough was was great. Uh, Wayne Ellington was great, and I think he was also the Final Four most valuable player, most outstanding player. Like people, because Wayne Ellington and Ty Lawson uh, kind of had underwhelming NBA careers, and Tyler Hansbrough didn't have a very good one either. People may forget how great this team is, but it's it was really really good. They only lost four times all year. Um, it was Ellington, lost, by the way. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what's great uh, about college basketball is that you can have a, this is a great college team. And of course, I'm a Kansas fan that had this team get smoked basically uh, the previous year by Kansas. So of course, I'm all in on promoting the greatness of this Carolina team the next year. <laughs> but you can have a great college team without having great NBA players. And I think that's what this team was. And they were untested really the entire tournament and credit to them. And I think there's a good chance that Virginia is a great uh, team, they are. They were a great team this year without great NBA players. I mean, yeah. maybe DeAndre Hunter and maybe Ty Jerome become great NBA players. Who knows about? Who, who knows? Kyle Guy. A lot of these guys could become really good NBA players. But um, and then that North Carolina did have. I mean, Ed Davis is still in the NBA. Danny Green has won titles. Is still in the NBA. So it's not like they had no one. But um, at some point, we're going to talk about the mo- the least talented or worst 
title teams. This will not be this podcast, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it is interesting how uh, it's a fun part of college basketball. It's like this is a, like this is a team that you remember as a great team, um, or even players like like Luke Herringody, <laughs> that like no one care like ever thinks about uh, after they leave college, yeah. except for people like us. Uh, so let's do this draft. Yes. Basically, we're going to do a draft of what we think in 10 years, looking back, are the first things going to pop into our head about this season. Uh, obviously, there's no way to win the draft, but it's basically just a way for us to kind of rank it and kind of think about uh, what's memorable about, th- about this season. Uh, we made a long list of potentials, but maybe we'll go off the board. Um, Tom, you can get the first pick. What is your pick for the most memorable thing? Obviously, a thing is kind of ambiguous. It could be a game, could be a, a player, a play. Um, it could be some kind of trend um, or event. What is your number one pick for the number one legacy of this season? So I'm torn here because I think there are two moments or things in this case, but moments really that are going to be probably the most, you know, one is the most significant um, to the course of the season and one is probably most significant to just like how this you know what the dominant storyline of the season is and just like the future of this season's contribution to the basketball world because i really think zion williamson is going to be this season's contribution to the basketball world and like that clip of him injuring himself with the shoe breakdown is you know that's gonna be like that's the first moment he really entered like the not enter the national consciousness but it's like his biggest first moment was an injury because of a shoe problem I feel weird picking that one, so I'm not going to pick that. I'm going to pick the uh, Clark Tiakite pass and shot because that was truly amazing. It led directly to a national championship for Virginia. Of course, if they don't make that dramatic, crazy play to force overtime against Purdue in the regional final, they're not going to get there. Um, and it was just a dramatic play. It was you know a crazy play with very low probability, a great decision, great execution by both Clark and Diakite. And it was in a great game and really summed up the NCAA tournament, which had a great regional final round and a great final four and a great championship game. So, and that really was a major part of that. So that's why I'm picking that play. It has a champion in it and it has, it was just, you know, it was just an amazing, that's like your, to me, that's the most, one of the most draw-dropping plays you'll ever see in a national, in a national basketball tournament. And it led to the national championship. Think about how many other teams have been involved in a signature play and won the title. Like, obviously you have, NC State, and you have Tyus Edney. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there anyone else. Chris Jenkins. Chris Jenkins, of course, over. yes. Um, this was a deficit of racing play in the early round. It's yeah. pretty crazy to think about how like, how much in the quote-unquote basketball universe would have been changed if uh, Virginia does not make this crazy play. It affected yeah. a lot. Definitely number one play, single play of the season. Um, I, I think... I'm torn between two picks here. We're going to go back and forth. I'm not going to do an S-curve. This is not like some kind of scientific draft. <laughs> um, but I'm going to say that this year is remembered as the year that like Tony Bennett slash Virginia broke through to win the national title. They also made the final four. So I'm going to go another, um, another uh, Virginia pick. Um, I think when you think about seasons in general, you think not so much about the player, although Zion's obviously a generational player, but you think about the team that won the title. And so it's hard to kind of not have the biggest moments of the season be like that team. It's like, okay, think of a year. Okay, 1988. Okay, who won? Okay, Kansas. What, then you think Danny Manning. You know, maybe yeah. Danny Manning's first in that one because it's, he was so uh, 
I mean, obviously Zion wins not to play with Duke. Maybe it, Zion's the first pick in our draft. But I'm going to go, after you go with the Kihei, Clark, uh, Mamadi, Jakite play, I'm going to go with Tony Bennett and UVA breaking through to win the title. Fair. Um, for me personally, the next thing I remember about the season is Kansas not winning the Big 12. And Kansas has a lot of problems right now. Um, they uh, obviously recruited um, Grimes, moved him off the ball. And he's going to be exploring his NBA draft possibilities. So one of their two highly touted guards is gone. They have uh, unresolved legal issues. Um, they have possible sanctions from the NCAA. And so I wonder if that Kansas-Duke game in the regional final last year, in the Elite Eight last year, which they won in overtime, is really like – it's possible. I don't want to get too fatalistic here, but it's possible it's the last great moment of the Bill Self era at Kansas. Like this all could come crashing down. I'm not saying it will. But um, it could. And Kansas is preseason number one this year. They had a lot of stuff go on with the D'Souza stuff and with just, you know, lackluster play on the court this year. And obviously, you know, they're in a lot of top ten lists for next year just because they're Kansas and they have, they're going to get a lot of talent. But I wonder if Kansas is a program, which obviously, you know, you're not going to – the streak, the 14 straight Big 12 championships wasn't going to go on forever. But I just wonder if – can't, this is like this is a blue blood program that has an un, had an unprecedented run of success, and I wonder if this isn't a blip that they didn't win. And Texas Tech won. Obviously, Texas Tech made it to the national championship game, but um, I wonder if this isn't a blip, but really just a sign of Kansas moving down a notch in the college basketball world, uh, just because of all the stuff going on in the program and you know off the court, but still very much in the program. Yeah, it's interesting because they're number nine. You aggregate all of the rankings for next year, but they're actually no higher than 11th in any individual poll. Um, they, they, in the six polls, they're 11th, uh, 12th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th. So people really think they're going to be between 11th and 15th. There's like no controversy about where, where I, yeah. Kansas will be. I feel like some people just, oh, we should pick Kansas. They were kind of good this year, and they're always good. So let's pick them in the poll. I don't think there's any real reason to see that. I mean, Self is a very good coach. I just think he's going to have a lot more challenges coming up than he's faced the last few years that's all i mean north carolina not to go too deep into this but north carolina is 21st in the aggregate rankings and is no higher than like if you if you look at them they they are uh 10th in in gary Parrish's rankings 12th in cl brown but they're not ranked in one of them and they're in like 21 or lower in the other three it's crazy um so yeah it could be an interesting down year where this year's felt like entering the year is like the year of the blue blood we had kentucky north carolina duke kansas all looking, and even Indiana seemed like they were going to be a little bit back. Um, and then by the end of the year, we ended up with Virginia, Texas Tech <laughs> in the championship game. Um, next year, we'll see what, uh, what it looks like. It looks like Kentucky will be good at least. Anyway, my f- the fourth overall pick, I'm going to go with Zion. Um, you know, obviously there are Zion moments, um, but I think when you remember this season, you'll remember this was the year that Zion Williams was in college basketball. Um, you, we can maybe later we pick some of the individual plays you mentioned breaking through the shoe the big block on uh, I think it was DeAndre Hunter in the UVA game his first game back after the injury where he had like a ridiculous game against Syracuse in the ACC tournament um, and just like the just watching him play was pretty amazing the kind of player he, he was and the moves he made um, so I'm picking a number four overall pick uh, Zion Williamson just generally being ridiculous that's fair, and I think he brought a lot of people into the mainstream college basketball earlier in the season than people expected. You know, there are a lot of fans out there who just don't really care about basketball until after NFL season or when the conference tournaments start even. It's kind of crazy. 
But Zion was he transcended the sport for a long time, and I think that's great that he did that, and it's great that college basketball had access to that, and the shoe play was a big part of that, and just his general play overall, like he was amazing, and he'll make an NBA team very happy probably, um, and he really just got had had college basketball in the national consciousness earlier and more prominently than it would have otherwise. Um, I'm going to take a little cheat here and pick two things in the next pick. Just these perennial conference outsiders doing really well this year in both Auburn and Texas Tech. Like Auburn was a foul away or a double dribble call away from making the championship game, and Texas Tech was a missed DeAndre Hunter three away from winning the national championship. And like, look what these teams did. Uh, Auburn beat Kentucky, you know, the SEC power in the um, national championship game. They won the SEC title. They blitzed Carolina, Kansas, uh, sorry, Kansas, Carolina, and Kentucky in three straight games and almost beat Virginia. Um, this is a team that could have won the national championship. And then look at Texas Tech. They lost all those players. They played this stifling defense that obviously had a bad night on Monday in the national championship game. But these are two teams that are never, have zero college basketball history, both time, first-time Final Four teams, both breakthroughs. Um, you know, just credit to their coaching job. I know we were I'm a little reluctant to give Bruce Pearl credit, but Chris Beard obviously is a great coach. And Bruce Pearl did a good job. He's just not really, you know, on the up and up. Um, so that's really the takeaway. <laughs> like in the year, Brent, you said it's the year of the blue blood, and then we end up with two, you know, no-name, not, not no-name programs because they're in major conferences, but like, you know, perennial also ran in the major conferences making the Final Four, which I think is cool, even if it wasn't the most sexy Final Four we ever had. And Bruce Pearl got a five-year extension on Friday, so good for him. Yeah. Um, my next pick, I think, is going to be is a tricky one. Um, you know, I th- things that happen after now will change what we remember about this season. Um, and so maybe this is the optimist in me. Uh, but I'm picking this as being remembered by me as the year Providence didn't make the tournament. After making it for six straight years and five straight years, and then in theory making it the next several years, I think that they're going to make it for a few more years after this. So I think this will be remembered for me as the year, the one kind of outlier year where Providence missed the num- NCAA tournament. They didn't have a point guard, um, and they basically couldn't score, even though they had a really good defense all season. Um, if Providence doesn't make the tournament next year or doesn't make it in, say, three of the next five years, then I'm not sure this season will stick out so much. But um, but for now, I'm going to say that I'll, I'll remember this year as a Providence fan as the year they, they missed it after making it so many consecutive years. That's fair. Uh, I think it's I, yeah. I think it's a less significant year in the life of a college of Providence fan than it is in the life of a Kansas fan. But um, given the stakes are a little lower. Sorry, but that's what I would say. But still, definitely, like, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to go back, for, I would imagine, from making the NCAA tournament to not uh, making it. Um, Tom says, I would imagine, because he doesn't know. Yeah, sure. Like yeah, uh, Kansas, has made, Kansas has the longest active streak of making the uh, NCAA tournament. And by the way, they've won a game in every NCAA tournament since 2006, I believe. So they're, they, it's not too hard being a Kansas fan. It's more self-awareness than like self-gloating here, Brandon. Um, my next pick is John Morant, because I think that um, a lot of, he opened a lot of people's eyes in the NCAA tournament. Uh, he obviously did not play at Duke, and he did not play at, um, you know, did not really have the name brand that Zion Williamson had, but he's going to be a top two or three pick in the NBA draft, and he is very impressive and had that, obviously, breakout performance in the NCAA tournament. Um, I think that when we look at the season, you know, I've spoken to people who went to that game at Hartford. My friend went there and watched the game, and he really opened some eyes there. And they say, like, it's crazy what you see when you're in person watching him play, how much of the court he sees. And, you know, 
Zion was, you know, the guy that elevated, as I said, the convert of the sport in December and January. But, you know, John Morant, my friend's a Knicks fan, he said I would be have no problem if they took him over Zion uh, in the NBA draft. And so I think that we should just be careful because when people listen to this podcast in 10 years, part of this is just me being safe. Like imagine if someone listened to this podcast in 10 years and then either of us mentioned John Morant. And maybe John Morant should have been mentioned earlier. Um, but I think he can be someone really special. And so he played for Murray State, had some crazy games, and uh, didn't have the tournament run that, uh, you know, some people that we think of, like for Steph Curry or whoever, but I think he still made his mark and will be here, heard from again in the basketball world. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to John Morant, uh, he'll need, if he becomes an all-star, then I think that that's, it will remember this, especially because of the really, really, like if he's a top 10 or 15 player in, in the NBA, then this will be the John Morant year. Um, and probably this is this pick is too low, uh, but I think this is similar to my last pick in a sense. It's like this, and it's that's what legacy is. Legacy isn't like if if we went back to April fourteenth, two thousand nine, would we have mentioned some other things that now totally slip our memory about the two thousand nine season? I mean, I'm sure we would have mentioned the Sy- Syracuse UConn six overtime game. And I'm sure we would have mentioned North Carolina being dominant in the Big East, having three number one seeds. But um, I'm. You know, what else would we have remembered then that now it's like, eh, I don't, you know, I don't remember. Um, and that's the, the minute, my next pick is like debating between two different things that um, might be in that category. And I think I'm going to go, because the, people remember the NCAA tournament really well, I'm going to go with an NCAA tournament moment or series of moments. I'm going to pick Carson Edwards' uh, four game stretch of the NCAA tournament, nearly getting Purdue into the final four for the first time since 1980, um, hitting a ridiculous amount of three-pointers, setting basically an NCAA tournament record for three-pointers, even though he only did it in four games, having the most points through the first four games of the tournament, like the last, I don't know, many, many years, breaking Buddy Heald and Steph Curry's recent performances, relatively recent performances. So I'm going to go with Carson Edwards over my other potential pick just because it happened in the NCAA tournament, and I think people remember the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I mean, I, we talked about this earlier. Those two back-to-back games of the Tennessee game and the Virginia game for Purdue. Like, those are two of the greatest games anyone had ever played back-to-back until Virginia played three crazy games back-to-back-to-back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, a well-earned mention for Carson Edwards, who was outstanding in uh, those games. Yeah, let's, let's do maybe two more picks each. Okay. Uh, thinking here. Good question. I mean, so many... I mean, so many memorable games this year, one for a bad reason, one for a good reason. Um, I'd feel better about picking this if I didn't turn it off, thinking the game was over, and then watched it the next day on uh, at the gym. But <laughs> this was, this, If you pick this, this is going to be my other. This is what I was debating between. I was debating Carson Edwards in this game. Okay, well, I'm picking Duke's comeback at Louisville, which I saw. I was yeah. like, this game is over. <laughs> we watched something else. I think I figured on a hockey game or an NBA game. And then I woke up the next morning, I'm like, oh, how many did they win by? Oh, they lost. <laughs> so I watched the second half at the gym the next morning. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a crazy game. That was, we talked about that at the time. It just really showed you how crazy this Duke team is. You know, not a three-point shooting team. They're still going to come back and win this game at Louisville, which really was the signature um, regular season performance for them, just to show you how – I mean, we had that in the game at Virginia. Um, but this was crazy. And, you know, it's you know leading into the tournament. It was, a, you know, one of the be- it was one of the best regular season games of the year just for the storyline, like which team did it and how they did it. So this is, yeah, this is my pick here. Yeah, I mean, I th- now I'm trying to think of there are other like Virginia moments. We've talked about Virginia so much in this, in this, but people remember the moments that the uh, the top teams that the champions had. Um, 
but I'm not going to pick one of your moments. Maybe you'll pick one of them, um, one of the other ones that we haven't already picked. You know, Kyle Guy hitting the three free throws, DeAndre Hunter hitting the game-tying shot, the generally the finish to the UVA-Auburn game with the, with the double dribble that wasn't called, and then the foul on the three, plus the Kyle Guy making the shot and then making the three, three free throws. I think though, if, we, if we have honorable mentions and those don't get picked, I wanted to – those are kind of preemptive honorable mentions. But I'm actually going to take um, – basically Texas Tech's defense um, the Texas Tech defense was the best I believe in the Ken Palm era relative to the country in terms of efficiency margin and what they did in consecutive games against Michigan um, uh, Gonzaga and then all, um, Michigan State in the NCAA tournament um, was super impressive especially considering the, the, I mean Michigan wasn't a great offense but Gonzaga and Michigan State were those were three of the top six teams in the in Ken Palm, and they almost knocked off the number one team. They could have knocked off four of the top six team teams, the five, four of the top six teams in Ken Palm, being one of the other ones. So the only one they wouldn't have knocked off would have been Duke, who obviously they could, didn't get a chance to knock off. So and Texas defense is amazing. The subject of like long videos and like how they do what they do. So um, I think will I actually remember the Texas defense in ten years? I don't know, but. Right now, I think that it's pretty pretty memorable. The legacy of Texas Tech, uh, two thousand nine to twenty nineteen defense. Yeah, I mean, I think it was super impressive, and I think not everyone appreciates that at the time, and no one enjoys watching them play. But I do think that um, it's worth rem- it's worth remembering because it was pretty pretty darn impressive, and almost won them a national title. And if in fact if they had played better in the championship game, they would have won the national title. So um, yeah, I think this tournament, like I actually was with someone last Sunday, so that was between. The um, the um, national championship game, this national semifinals and the championship game, and he said that this wasn't that great an NCAA tournament. I said we must not have been watching the same tournament. Like the Elite Eight and the semifinals were great, and there were a lot of good Sweet Sixteen games and second round games, the Duke VCU game. It took a while to get started, but the finish in the NCAA tournament, I think, if you go back in ten years, will be the best. Like if you add up, like if you put like whatever you want, whatever metric you want to do, to do it, just but. Just for anecdotally, like how are you ever going to get a better Elite Eight? Elite Eight, um, uh, just start the Elite Eight. Elite Eight National Semifinals and Championship Game combination than you have this year. And then throw in like some classic Sweet 16 games when you had the Purdue Tennessee game and the um, uh, Duke Virginia Tech, Tech game. Duke, and the yeah. Kentucky Houston game, which um, was, you know, over, which was pretty much overlapped because that Duke Virginia. Tech game went so long was also great. There's you know a lot of great games. So start there. Like when are you ever going to get a better aggregate uh, experience? Now you're not going to get the name brand teams there, but the actual basketball games, the drama on the court, uh, will not be topped in the next ten years. That's my prediction. Yeah. It sounds like someone who follows the NBA closer than college basketball to me. Honestly, well, I'm not saying that person did, but like, um, like it sounds like someone who was excited to watch college basketball uh, NBA prospects and instead got. Uh, just basically got Jarrett Culver and DeAndre Hunter in the Final Four and no other even potential top lottery picks. I mean, Ty Jerome, I think, could be a first-round pick if he comes out. But just just look up the 2009 NCAA tournament on, on Wikipedia or Wikipedia. As I said it right. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> you're, you're picking the wrong thing to pick on me about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. It's, 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 an old, it's an old story between uh, a few of us. It's an inside, inside joke. Yeah. Which is- but if you look at some of these games, I mean, obviously – you can't tell how good they are just looking at the score, but if you look at the the regional semifinals and finals, uh, we remember the the Villanova Pitt game, but it was the only good game of the only close game of the regional finals. The Louisville um, 
the Louisville game against Michigan State was kind of memorable, but Louisville ended up losing by 12. Connecticut won by 7 over Missouri, a game that wasn't really ever that close. And North Carolina won by 12 over Oklahoma. You look at the Sweet 16 games, and I'm, I see um, a Pittsburgh-Xavier game, which Levance Fields uh, famously hit a big three that I reacted to at a bar with Tom yep. in uh, the village. Um, so that was a good game. And other than that, uh, Michigan State-Kansas, you remember that game, Tom? Regional semifinal? Yeah, this is a team that game expected. Michigan State was in control most of the game, and they won. So, yeah. yeah. The rest of the games were, like, very much blowouts. So, like, like obviously, it doesn't might, might be an outlier bad year, but it also, 2019 might be an outlier good year. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so did you did you make your pick? Yeah, my pick was the last three rounds of the NCAA tournament. Last oh, three plus okay. rounds, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's creative. Um, I just think you have seven games. Um, you're not going to get a better, and there were no duds, and there were some all-time classics. You're never. It's not going to get better than that. Um, okay, my last pick. Uh, you know, I am a big fan of the college basketball regular season, even though there's so many games, um, and so many games that don't mean that much. But um, one game that was memorable to me, it would have meant more if these teams had done better in in, the, in March. It, uh, but they didn't. Uh, they didn't meet again. They were kind of on a path to meet in the regional, in the national semifinals, and then they both lost in the Elite Eight. But that's the Maui Invitational final between Gonzaga and Duke. Uh, that's going to be my final pick. Uh, the game was really well played. It, it was a time when people thought that Duke might be a super team. So to take down, it was literally that day or the day before people were saying that they could beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, which is a dumb thing to say. But that was like the the time we were in if you take yourself back there, um, and. The way Gonzaga played on offense, and then Duke coming back in the second half, and it being in Maui, and Maui is like it's kind of the tournament. It's the day before Thanksgiving. It's a little bit early this year. Yeah, if you uh, really want a memorable college basketball game, play it at five o'clock Eastern on Thanksgiving Friday when literally half the country is going somewhere else. It's Thanksgiving Wednesday. Yes, but the point stands. Well, whatever it is, uh, Thanksgiving Wednesday at five o'clock. That is not prime time viewing. In Hawaii, I watched the which, game with which is with, new with my, local with my dad and with my my. Yeah, you were my already home, but so many so. people are traveling. Then. Yeah. So I'm just saying, great game. Though. It was a great game. It's a, a little hat tip to the uh, college basketball regular season, and uh, uh, so it's my final pick. Are there any um, other kind of honorable mentions you want to mention? I, I mentioned some of the things that university, the UVA did down the stretch that we didn't get to talk about. That obviously we talked about with Todd. But are there any other things in here that uh, you think maybe will be in a few years memorable about this season? I just, I just want to say, I think. One of the things that I don't want to remember and isn't memorable, but was still funny and talked about a lot, was Virginia Tech forty-seven, NC State twenty-four. That was funny. That was a good. That was the, that was the best comedy of the twenty. You know, there's Golden Globes, the best comedy or musical. That was the best comedy or musical of the uh, 2018-19 season. Yeah, a few other things that I that I wrote down here: LSU winning the SEC title while Will Wade was suspended for um, FBI investigation is memorable, interesting. And after uh, uh, and after their um, player was killed. Wade Sims was killed before the season started. That's also worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah. You had Cal, who had no wins in the Pac-12, beating Washington for their first win um, in the game that was probably the first to end in March in the uh, at least Eastern time of the season. Um, I was also nominated for best comedy or musical. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had UCLA's implosion first, firing Steve Alford on on uh, New Year's Eve, and then being terrible at basketball, and then botching their coaching search, which is actually most of, much of that was postseason. Um, yeah, I think that that will be that could be memorable depending on how it goes for Mick Cronin. Um, nothing else really stands out for me. Um, 
you know, we see disappointing teams don't really aren't really memorable ten years later. Like Villanova having their worst year in a while, yeah. bad or disappointing. Those things don't tend to um, be remembered ten, yeah. twelve. Remember years that later. totally forgettable underachieving Villanova team that was surrounded by like four Final Four teams in the other six years. Yeah, and, and it still won the Big East tournament, yeah. won the Big Fifteen title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I do think that the Georgetown win over Providence in double overtime where they hit threes at the end of regulation, the end of first overtime, which is rated right now as the most exciting game on Kempom of the season. Wow. I'll, rem- I'll remember that game, um, mostly with a lot of pain, but I don't think most people remember that game, a random Saturday in January, a noon game. Um, but I personally remember that game. Um, yeah, so I guess that puts kind of a capper on the, on the season, Tom. Yeah, I think we did a good... Uh Good season, good, great, good to great season of college basketball, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a memorable one. I think better than two thousand nine. If that's our first bar that we have to leap over, we cleared it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Tom. Uh, rate, subscribe, review. Uh, we talked about the platforms. You can look them up. They'll be on Twitter. Email us. Follow us on Twitter. Double bonus pod at uh, on Twitter at so double bonus pod at gmail is our email address. Maybe if you email us a lot, we'll have you on the show later, like we did with the uh, the would be assassin, yeah. um, and then our website no is bonuspod.com. No, we're not promising. Anything. You have to email us a lot, and well, both things. And tied. also, your team has to win the uh, national championship. Yeah, those three things have to happen. Then we'll consider having you on the show. <laughs> yeah. So if there are any like Michigan State fans or Kentucky fans who want to have a shot to be on the podcast next April, get them in early. Start emailing. Yeah. Now. Okay. Um, until next time, Tom, thanks, uh, thanks so much, uh, and enjoy the, the uh, tape-delayed Masters. Oh, yeah, I will. You too. And it starts right there with number three. With the pressure, there it is. Gets the takeaway. Oh, okay. oh, are you serious? Slam jam, man. Get him ready for the NBA dunking contest. You can't teach what he possesses, the physicality, the toughness, the agility, the great footwork, the handle. Play good defense for a freshman. Good night. Here Morant, 12 seconds. Wow! Well, whether he knows that there's a gym full of NBA scouts or not. Oh, he does. 36 points he's showing off tonight.